0: A series of fiction novels set in the Tudor era of England, it's called the Matthew Shard Lake series, it's by C.J. Sansom, and it's about a hunchback lawyer during the time of King Henry VIII. The year before last, I read a different series of novels, very different type of book altogether. It's uh, the four volumes by Christopher Paolini, The Inheritance Cycle, And it's basically fantasy about a boy and his dragon. Now, very different books. um, Written for very different audiences. But this week as I was studying this passage and getting ready for this service, I realized that C.J. Sansom and Christopher Paolini, writing from two different continents to two different groups of people in two very different genres, that they had something deeply in common. Both of these series which are fine series. I'm about to say something negative, but they're really good books. I commend them to you. Both of these series portray priest and the priesthood in incredibly negative ways. What made me think about this was my son Sloan has been listening to these books on CD and he keeps talking to me about the priests of hell grind, which are very bad dudes in the inheritance cycle. And he kept asking me questions about these guys that are just wretches and, and it stuck in my mind. And so I'm studying and, and I'm thinking about the priests of Hellgrind and all the bad stuff they do as I'm trying to read the Bible. And I realize that Sloan's priests of hell grind and, and priest in, in the Matthew Shardlake series, one set in a kind of a fantasy land and one set in a detective fiction land by a hunchback lawyer, which is quite interesting in King Henry VIII's court. Both of them priests are stereotypical and they're flat. Um, They're flat characters, they're not round, they're not robust, they're not complex, and they're this. They are power hungry, they're self-interested, and religion is just a tool they use to secure their slice of the pie. Now the more I thought about this, the more I realized that both of these fine authors are actually reading off a script that is prevalent in our modern culture. And this script was not written by Paolini or by Sansom. It was written by Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche. Both Kant, this philosopher from the 18th century who has influenced our culture incredibly at at a very fundamental level, whether you've ever heard his name or if you've ever even read the Critique of Pure Reason or not, Kant said that priesthood is one of the oldest pieces of fiction. That's a quote from from his book, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason. And he says, priesthood corrupts pure religion with dogma and ritual. Now, he's writing this in the late 1700s. So Friedrich Nietzsche comes along in the 19th century, and he's another person whose ideas really do write a script for our culture today, whether you know him or not. And Nietzsche hated the priesthood. And he insisted that the whole idea of priesthood was filled with dishonesty. So what do C.J. Sansom and Christopher Paolini and Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche have to do with the passage of Scripture and what we're doing in this room this morning? In order to show you that, we've got to go back much further than Paolini or Sansom or Nietzsche or Kant. We've got to go back to the 15th century B.C. And what I want to do is point out to you how priesthood started in Christianity and in its roots called Judaism. The first time that the ordained priest showed up, it's when the nation of Israel are camped around Mount Sinai. And Yahweh, this is the God of Israel, He chooses one person, Aaron, the brother of Moses, and Aaron's son, to be priest. And what that meant in that situation was they ministered in God's house. And the Bible says that their job is, get this, to stand and to serve as household servants of the king, the one true king, God, in his palace, the temple. And all of their jobs were either serving God or serving the community. You could sum up their community jobs in this. They were butchers, they were butlers, and they were bakers. They butchered the animals. It sounds like a nursery rhyme, right? They butchered the animals, they ground up the grain, and they baked the bread that was placed on the altar. And Yahweh's altar in the Old Testament is His table. It's it's like His dinner table. So in the Old Testament, the priest, they had work to do at God's altar. And their work was primarily table service. Now, they didn't more. They kept the lampstands in the temple in working order by trimming their wicks and replenishing the oil. Each morning and evening, they offered incense in the temple. So you you get the idea that their job was to keep Yahweh, the king, to keep his house well-lit, aromatic, and supplied with daily food. So a priest was fundamentally and essentially, in the Old Testament, A priest was a personal attendant serving Yahweh. Now, that was their job. And in a moment, I'm going to show you how all of this history has everything to do with what is happening in this room this morning. But first, I need to point out one other thing about these priests. And it's not their job. It's how they became priests. A person was made a priest in the Old Testament through a very elaborate eight-day-long ritual. And there were four primary actions in the ritual that made a priest. Now, if you want to read about it, you can take some time, read this later. and It's in Exodus 29 and in Leviticus 8 and 9. The four primary things that happened when a priest was ordained is this. Number one... A ritual washing of their body. Number two, anointing with oil. Number three, investiture, which is when you put a clothing on a, a set of clothing on someone that signifies their office and gives them the authority of their office. And then number four, after they had bathed, after they had been anointed, after they had been invested, they were given permission to participate in a sacrificial meal that belonged to God alone. Now, when a person went through this ritual, they were ordained a priest. And, And because they were ordained a priest, God entered into a covenant with this person and He said that this person now has permission, because they've been ordained, they now have permission to stand in the presence of God. They now have permission to serve God and to serve the people of Israel on God's behalf. Three things God gave them permission to do once they were ordained. They could stand in God's presence, they could serve God, and they could serve the people of Israel. Now here's what we need to see, is that ordination, when a person was ordained, he received a new standing in Israel. And, more importantly, because he was ordained... He was qualified to be the personal attendant of Yahweh and to stand in the house of Yahweh and serve them. So after ordination, God himself looked at this person differently than he did before ordination. He, he, he looked at them and saw a new creation. This was Aaron and now it is the high priest Aaron. A new creation. If, if, if this person prior to ordination had come into the most holy place, God would kill them. But now because they've been ordained, they may enter. And not only can they enter, they can eat the bread. Okay, enough history lesson. Look in your Bible at Luke chapter 3. This is the passage that I read to you. This is the baptism of Jesus. Jesus. And what is important for us to know this morning is that Jesus' baptism was His ordination to the high priesthood. It was His inauguration ceremony as a priest. Now there are many clues in the Scriptures that what was going on here was an ordination service. I'll give just five of them. Number one... The surrounding chapters, when you read Luke like a novel, which is the way you should read him, you should read him the way you read Paulini or Sansum or whoever you like to read. You should read him paying attention to the texture of the literature. And when you read Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, by the time you get with Jesus on the banks of the Jordan in Luke chapter 3, there has been so much priestly stuff happening. There's been it's such so saturated with priesthood, priesthood illusions, priesthood typologies, priesthood references. By the time you find Jesus at the banks of the Jordan in chapter three, you are expecting to meet a priest. Number two, why was Jesus baptized at all? I mean, it says in Luke chapter three, verse three, that this baptism is for the forgiveness of sin. I mean, some of you are familiar with the Bible You've asked, why was Jesus baptized? If baptism was for the forgiveness of sin, and Jesus is never he arrives on the scene, we're looking for a priest, but the one we see is someone who doesn't need to be forgiven. And this should cause a dis- kind of juncture in your reading, and you should stop and you should ask, why? And the answer is that Jesus is identifying Himself with His people because that's what the priests did in the Old Testament. They were sin-bearing substitutes. The high priest of Israel was a sin-bearer. So if you read the whole Bible like a novel, which is what you should, you should read it through like one single huge capacious narrative. And by the time you get to Luke 3 and you've learned all this stuff about priesthood, you know that the high priest of Israel accumulated the sins of Israel on himself all year long until the day of atonement when he laid the sins of Israel on the scapegoat. The priests of the Old Testament were ordained for the purpose of bearing the sins of Israel. So, this is why Jesus was baptized into solidarity with us. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, another way we know that the baptism of Jesus is actually his ordination to priesthood. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, you need to know that Luke, who wrote this biography, was writing history, but he was writing history with an ideology. He had a theological agenda. And he doesn't just bring up the age of Jesus to be a good historian. He brings up the age of Jesus because there's a, histor- there's a theological issue at stake, and it's this. In the Old Testament, priests were ordained and began their ministry, could you guess, at age 30. And remember, their ordination began with what? A ritual bath. Now look at Luke chapter 3, verse 22. When Jesus is baptized, it says, The Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And when you look at Psalm chapter 2, Psalm number 2, and you compare it to Luke chapter 3, what you see is that Jesus is being glorified, he's being lifted up as a royal high priest. One more thing. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, as was supposed Of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph. And it goes on all the way down to, I I think, about 38 with a genealogy of Jesus. Now, that's weird. Because if you read Matthew's gospel, which which is what you would have read before this, if you were reading the Bible like a novel, Matthew starts out the story of Jesus by telling his genealogy. I was riding one time somewhere with David Cooper. I said, "David, tell me about yourself." And he said, "In the um, 18th century, or 19th, 18th century, my people landed in somewhere in the Northeast." David introduced himself to me by telling me his heritage, his genealogy. Now that's the way Matthew introduces us to Jesus, but Luke defers the genealogy. It's not in chapter 1. It's not in chapter 2. It comes up after Jesus is born, after Jesus is 30, after Jesus has been baptized. Now, is Luke a sloppy author? Is he lost control of the plot line and he's got to get it in there? So, oh well, I'll just put a parenthetical reference, you know. Here's like a footnote to an appendix or something. That's actually not what's happening. You see... In the Old Testament, for a person to become ordained as a priest, they had to prove that they came from the right bloodline. So throughout the Old Testament, anytime you meet a priest, they're told to be the son of. And it's a way of tying them in so that they've got the right to be priest. So when Luke finishes with Jesus' baptism and then immediately goes into a genealogy, what he's doing is saying he's the son of. He's got a right to be priest. Now, what does this have to do with us today? To see that, we need to look at another passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, this passage that was read to us just a few moments ago. In Hebrews chapter 10 we see that when you are a Christian, when you have been baptized, you get the privilege of access to the most holy place. This is the privilege that only a priest was given in the Old Testament after they had been washed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. Why can we do this? Because our hearts have been sprinkled with clean water, and our evil consciences have been sprinkled, and our bodies washed with pure water. Look, all of a sudden in Hebrews, you get a privilege that only the priest got in the Old Testament. If we had read the passage in Acts that is listed in your worship guide, we would see that Jesus at His baptism was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that at your baptism, you are anointed also with the Holy Spirit. And finally, if we were to read Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, we would see that just like Jesus was clothed with the Spirit, you are clothed with Jesus at your baptism. Now, there's a lot of other passages, but what I'm saying is this. Baptism today fulfills and replaces ordination to the priesthood in the Old Testament. When you were baptized, you were made a priest. You were given all the privileges that only the priest had. And your ordination had a bath and it had had a clothing And it had an anointing. And after you were washed, after you were anointed, after you were clothed, you were given the privilege of eating the bread. Baptism makes you a priest. And this morning we're going to make six priests. We're going to go through a ritual with them this morning that God gave us. That when we do it, it makes priests. Now, I want to tie all of this up by showing you four ways that baptism changes everything about your life and about my life and about the world today. First of all, I want you to realize that in just a little bit, Benjamin Coleman and Genevieve Robertson and Josephine Robertson and Madison and Matthew and Natalie Robertson, just like the priests in the Old Testament... They're going to get a ritual bath, And when that happens, just like with the priest in the Old Testament, God will look at them differently. He will see them different than He saw the, They will be new creations. They will be made priests. Now, some of us don't like to say that baptism works like that. Some of us don't like to think that baptism works automatically because in some respects it doesn't. Work automatically. Baptism doesn't guarantee eternal salvation. But in this respect, as an ordination, baptism is automatic. Everyone who is baptized is ordained into the priesthood, whether they like it or not. Now you might be bothered by that. A baptized person can renounce Christ. They can reject everything that they confess or is confessed upon their behalf this morning. You can forget your baptism. But having once passed through the waters of baptism, every actions thereafter are the actions of a priest. You can be a corrupt priest. You can be a ruined priest. You can be an inauthentic priest. You can be a terrible priest. But you're a priest nonetheless. Now there's a lot to talk about, about what it means when a priest goes bad. We'll save that for another day. What I want to show you is this idea that some of these children have no choice in it, but most of the serious things in your life you have no choice in. Your priesthood is a sheer act of grace. God, this is a gift God is giving these children, and He's not asking their permission to give it to them. Ben, Genevieve, Josephine, Madison, Matthew, Natalie, they did not choose their parents. They didn't choose to live in the valley, which is a great piece of grace in their life. They didn't choose to be an American. They didn't choose to be members of this church. And they did not choose to be made priests. God chose to. God chooses to make them priests. And through the waters of baptism, He will lay His mighty hand on each of them and declare that they are His priests. Now, these children are going to spend the remainder of their lives trying to figure out and trying to learn how to be a Coleman or a Robertson. That's a lifelong project. But more profoundly than that, they are to spend the rest of their lives growing into their priesthood, learning what it means that they are priests of Yahweh, That they are children of a heavenly Father. That they are a sister or a brother to Jesus Christ. That they will spend the rest of their life walking in the spirit of adoption. Second thing is this. Before a person was made a priest in the Old Testament, they were not allowed to approach the table and to receive the holy food. But once they went through the ordination ceremony... They could minister in the house of God. And in the Old Testament, ordination began with a washing and it ended with a meal. And you're about to see the exact same movement. We're going to start with a washing and these children are going to end at the table in a meal. The person in the Old Testament, after they were ordained, they were welcomed to the family dinner table the table of God, because they were no longer strangers. The baptized are privileged to enter the house and approach the table. They are not strangers. They are children adopted into the family. Welcome at the table. A third thing that changes with baptism is this. Our society teaches us that we're free to do whatever we want with ourselves, The only limit is that your personal freedom shouldn't impact somebody else's personal freedom. This is the gospel of the modern world. It's the gospel of John Locke, to be honest. But it is not the Christian gospel. Now, the Christian gospel says that your baptism, you were ordained into the priesthood, you no longer live for yourself, but you're a servant of God and a servant of His people. This is the priesthood of all believers. In America, we've twisted the priesthood of all believers into giving us individual rights. But do you know what the priesthood of all believers is? It's welcome to the group that serves everybody and that lays their rights down at the door and exists now to serve the King and His people. That's the priesthood of all believers. You do not have the absolute right of private judgment about morals and doctrine once you're a priest. You don't have the liberty to interpret the Bible with complete autonomy once you're a priest. Each believer is not a church to themselves. They're a priest to others. To be baptized means that each of us now has the privilege to go before God for others. That's what it means to be a priest. If you notice that I have no faith or weak faith, guess what? You can be my priest. You can go to God on my behalf. And you can ask God to give me strong faith. If you notice that your children are wandering, you're a priest. You go before the Father for them as their priest. And you ask God to... Be with them. When you have friends and family who are off the rails, whose life is degrading, you're a priest. Do something about it. The priesthood of the believer means that every Christian is a priest and that we are priests to one another. In the Old Testament, the priests were not for themselves alone. And neither is it today. It is a summons. To serve God. Do you realize what is about to happen to these six children? They are going to be summoned away from themselves to serve God and His people and this world. They are about to be baptized into holy orders. Number four, last thing, I'll stop with this. To be baptized is not only to be welcomed to God and welcomed to His table and welcomed into His community, To be baptized is to be welcomed into politics. (laughs) A bunch of people just looked up. (laughs) Let, let, Let me explain to you how political baptism is. Ancient cities were structured by a separation between those who had a claim of descent from the founding clans. They were called the patricians. And those who could not make such a claim, they were called, anybody know? The plebes, the plebeians. And this separation into two groups was was recognized in ancient cities spatially. The plebeians lived either at the foot of the sacred hill or in the ghettos clustered at the walls. But the patricians lived up the hill close to the temple. Many historians have attributed the downfall of the caste system in the West to Christendom and to baptism. You see, Christian baptism makes you a priest no matter what family you come from. The church baptizes one and all. It has nothing to do with your family, or your class. It has nothing to do with your race. Everyone within the watery walls of this city participates in the religion of this city. You see, baptism destroyed the caste system in the West. Immanuel Kant, Friedrich Nietzsche, they've given us a society that wants to forget that. That wants to only look at the corruption of the priesthood. And we see this prejudice in books like Aragon or Hearthstone. But I hope you see a different perspective. And I hope that you are amazed when you realize that God accepts you, His priest, to His table. And it's grace. It's nothing you did. And that your priesthood is a call to service. And I hope that you have been amazed that God can throw down nations and plant new ones with a few drops of water. Let's pray.